Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks. Well, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. Uh, my name is Adam Jones. And I'm Cameron Horine. And we're excited to be coming to you today. Not talking uh, row crop stuff today. Uh, we've, we've covered a lot of those things and feel like we, we need to transition to, to some of the diversity going on in the landscape in our state and, and talk a little pasture management. Talk a little pasture weed management. Uh, talk a little cultural management of, of pasture and grazing acres across our trade territory. And so we're excited to, uh, to have the guests with us that we have uh, in person today. And so we'll let, uh, let them introduce themselves and, and give a little background. I usually give people 45 seconds. I've been told that that's not enough. So, uh, so Landry, you uh, give us as much time as you need, bud. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for having me, Adam and, and Cameron. Um, my name is Landry Jones, and, and I am the conservation grazing specialist for MFA. Started with MFA a couple years ago and prior to that. Uh, work for the Missouri Department of Conservation, both managing public and private lands, um, have a passion for cattle management, grazing, and the effects that that can have on the landscape. Um, and so took this job with MFA a couple years ago to kind of reach a broader audience than what I was capturing with Missouri Department of Conservation and really kind of, um, you know, hit, really work one-on-one with cattle producers and, and show them the benefits of conservation grazing and some of the management techniques that are associated with that. Great, thanks, thanks, Landry. You know, you hear people um, use the term like uh, "all hat, no cattle." Um, when I think of Landry, I always think of the opposite. Landry's like "all cattle, no hat." So <laughs> um, definitely knows his stuff. So appreciate you being here, Landry. David, you want to give us your uh, kind of just an introduction? Sure. David Moore is my name. I'm the range and pasture specialist for MFA. I've uh, been in this role for roughly 11 years now. And uh, my, my passion, and that's a good choice of words, Landry, my passion is really helping our producers find ways to increase the number of pounds of beef per acre per year that they can produce on their land. Uh, whether that's meeting with producers or working with our account managers to, for them to go out and help producers. That's what I enjoy doing. Yeah. For sure, thanks, David, and and you're good at it. And it, today, you know, I just got a market alert on my phone this morning um, from the grain terminal that corn was over seven dollars. So I think talking about uh, talking about maximizing that pounds of beef really matters this year. I mean, not that it didn't before, but I, I think it's really woke some people up looking at looking at feed prices. So I think it's a pretty timely discussion. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> So I, I, think, I think where we ought to start is, is we're kind of in the first of June. Uh, not saying this is when we should focus on, on weed management and pasture because it's, it's kind of a year-round scenario. But just we have so many diversified operations. This is kind of when a lot of people turn attention to, to managing pasture. I, I think the easiest way, and I'll let, uh, maybe let David uh, take a stab at this one, but maybe kind of talk about some of the weed types that we see in pastures whether that's annual perennial biennials and, and kind of explain what those are and then maybe under each of those categories give us give us some examples of driver weeds that you typically encounter or most folks call you with issues with boy you opened up pandora's yeah. box <laughs> on that one. and i'm just going to leave for the next 45 minutes oh <laughs> uh, goodness now there are several categories of weeds we have uh winter annuals that uh uh, 
kind of run their course of their life from about November through March or April. We've got biennials that'll emerge in October or so and may not mature until the middle of the following summer. Uh, then we've got summer annuals that'll emerge as soon as the ground temperature gets up above 60 and uh, then we've got perennials that are that are kind of there year-round and year after year. And then I'm going to tack on brush. Brush is kind of in a segment all its own on on perennials uh, that uh, we kind of have to tackle very uniquely and very much with a prescription but uh, as far as driver weeds in the biennials uh, thistles is probably the number one thing but there's a whole group of them there's thistles there's cut leaf teasel there's spotted knapweed uh, there's marish tail there's uh, you know there's just a, a whole group of, sure. of things uh, dock and really and truly one of the missed opportunities that we have in controlling biennials and winter annuals has been not taking advantage of a late fall application of herbicide. Primarily because nobody really wants to unwinterize their sprayer to go out and spray, you know, right before deer season or right after deer season. Uh, impregnating fertilizer with Duracor and uh, putting some P and K down if you haven't already done so. Uh, that, that's a great opportunity to take care of some of those problems because you won't believe what your field looks like when it has gone all winter without having people stealing fertilizer and moisture or people, weeds stealing fertilizer and moisture. And, and the grass has been fed properly. It wakes up good and healthy and robust and it'll make a big difference in, in uh, weeds. Then we stretch that to summer annuals Probably the number one summer annual uh, that I get questions on is, is going to be ragweed, whether that's common ragweed, landsleaf ragweed, uh, giant ragweed, but uh, probably common is the number one driver there. And, and in my opinion, that's the number one thief of dollars from the cattle industry, just hands down. Because when we let common ragweed go, it takes all the moisture and it takes all the plant food and there's very little grass to remain. Uh, and well, it's not to jump in on too much. You bet. Um, it seems like there, there's more and more issues with ragweed. I mean, have you seen kind of an expansion of that um, in the in the past few years? Because you know, I've gotten quite a few questions about people who are like, I don't remember. You know, I've always managed my pastures the same way. I don't remember having this issue before. Hmm. You, do you see that kind of expanding out a little bit? I do. Um, and what I've what I've seen, and it's not always the case, but. You let a little patch of ragweed go, mm -hmm. and and let it mature. Well, ragweed's one of those that makes several hundred thousand seed per plant, and if I run that 15 foot cutter over that after it's matured, I probably just seeded my whole field with it, and that's how easy it expands. And sure. last year, the big driver on the ragweeds was was landsleaf ragweed. You know, instead of the four foot tall ragweed, it was knee high and fields were just absolutely black with it. But the, mm -hmm. it does the same thing. It steals all the moisture. Yeah. So there's a number of annual, you know, summer annuals that are out there. We get on to perennials and you start thinking about things like uh, buttercup. Buttercup's one that's been really big this year, gotten a lot of phone calls on. And it's, it's not very easy to control primarily because nobody notices it until it puts a yellow flower on and it's much harder to control after it's blooming right so if you know you've got a hard to control species and it's hard to control when it's blooming 
we need to pay attention to where it's at and next year if we go out two weeks before or two months before we anticipate seeing those blooms and we make a herbicide application then and and uh, just interrupt the whole process right well you know you mentioned a, a couple things about herbicide david and um kind of can you kind of run the gamut for us and, and i know that you know people traditionally talked about you know in the past have sprayed a lot of 2,4-D on pastures and things like that can you t- We've seen, we have seen some, you know, new chemistry come out recently in, in pasture herbicides. And can you kind of give us the, the positives of some of that and kind of where we've been and where we're headed from a pasture weed control herbicide standpoint? Sure. You know, my granddad started out, I think, with 2,4-D, uh, great product. Uh, and it's become a great ingredient. Uh, probably the biggest limitation on 2,4-D is no residual activity. Right can be a benefit sometimes if I'm looking for something that does not hang around in the soil. Uh, Crossbow was the first real combination uh, pasture herbicide that we saw and that's 2,4-D plus Remedy. Uh, Still move an awful lot of it. There are better products out there now. Uh, Again, Crossbow does not have any residual activity so that's its biggest shortcoming. we move into the world of the Grazons. You know, Grazon P plus D is one that a lot of people kind of cut their teeth on, and that one was Tordon plus 2,4-D. It's a great product. Uh, it is restricted. It has some uh, some drawbacks to it that they want you to make sure that you read the label and understand, A, I can't spray it up real close to water. I need to understand that that Tordon likes to move through the soil, and I need to have that in mind when I'm spraying it. The next evolution of Grazon was Grazon Next. They pulled the Tordon out and uh, put Amino Pyrrolid in or Milestone. And uh, that that was a really, really strong move. Uh, it's a stronger product. It killed more weeds and, uh, and was environmentally safer. We could spray it all the way to the edge of water. It doesn't like to move around through the soil. Mm-hmm. So it's been a great product. Um, the next evolution in, in that was uh, to Duracore, and this is the most recent one a couple of years ago that we got. Uh, the 2,4-D came out of the Grazon Next and it was replaced, uh, they call it Renscore technology. Fluoroperoxifen is the actual chemical name and, and that's a herbicide that started out life in the rice world. They found out how safe it was on grass and how strong it was on weeds. So it was a natural pairing with, uh, with amino pyrrolid. Uh, it followed that trend of being environmentally safer. In fact, it won a green award from the EPA, which is absolutely unheard of in the, in the pasture herbicide business. Sure. Um, and it's extremely strong. Uh, kills far more weeds. Where Grazon has a list of about 100 weeds, Duracore has a list of almost 150 weeds that it kills. In particular, where I, I really find that to be an advantage is on some weeds that Grazon kind of struggled with. Duracore does not. It's, you know, it's, it's going to kick butt and take names later. Mm-hmm. It, uh, uh, things like buckhorn plantain, like poison hemlock, like cucklebur, uh, that we kind of struggle with that, with controlling well. Duracore does a better job. Um, you know, I'm not sure that I have found a downside to it yet. Um, I know that I can make it work a little bit better if uh, as the season extends and and things uh, things get a little bit more mature if i switch to an adjuvant that has some oil uh, that makes it work a little bit better and uh, takes something that's already pretty hot and makes it even hotter Um, if i get onto something uh, 
how, for instance, poison hemlock's really hard to control once it gets over knee high. Yep. And Duracore is going to do everything it can. But if it gets five or six feet tall and I need to spray it, I'm probably going to add a little bit of 2,4-D and some oil. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a, it's the newest thing out there and we're still learning what it what its limitations are, which sure. I will tell you are not a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's definitely nice to have something that, that covers the gamut um, to that extent because, you know, a lot of times livestock producers are um, looking to do some of the application themselves or something like that, and, they you know, they want to be able to purchase something that, that kills the majority of, of their weeds and, and kind of keep it on the shelf next to their ATV sprayer or whatever. And it definitely definitely has a, has a place there. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, identification of kind of what you have and and it's nice to have chemistry that like you said works for so many different species but talk a little bit about the uh, importance of timing of of that application on some of those species absolutely we uh there's several things that go into uh making an application successful and uh, timing is one of those you know we i know you guys have all heard about the four r's you know the right product at the right rate uh, on the right weed at the right time and all four of those are very important I'll add a fifth one with the right adjuvant yeah um, you know the using the right spreader sticker the right uh, makes it makes all the difference in the world but uh, timing is huge uh, a lot of these herbicides have enough residual activity and Duracore is one that does that we can apply that when you see the very first plant or even before you see the very first plant and let that product work kind of like birth control for weeds. That weed seed begins to emerge underground, it germinates, it sends its root out, its first drink of water has herbicide with it, and it never breaks through the surface of the ground. That is the best weed control program that we can get. If I, if I will switch from being reactive, I see a weed, I go kill a weed, to being proactive. I know the weed's gonna come, so I'm gonna spray and prevent that from happening. That's probably one of the greatest steps that we can take because then we know every drop of water, every pound of plant food is going to feed the forages that we want and not the Right. Weeds. I mean, to that, to that point, it's just like we're pushing in soybeans these days is yeah. kill, kill seeds, not weeds. I mean, you know, we have all these resistant weeds when we're thinking about the row crops and soybeans. We need to get them killed with residuals before those weeds come up. It's the same way in the pastures, too. It's, it's, it is exactly the same way, and, and I'm a little bit worried as time goes on as we look at resistance issues out there uh, you know in the row crop world we have a pretty good number of modes of action and uh, when we look at how the the pasture herbicides work we're looking at two groups of herbicides we're looking primarily at growth regulators and uh, sulfonylureas and that's that's really pretty much it Uh, if we were to get resistance to the uh, growth regulators that's going to knock out 95% of our herbicide options. That's that's not a good spot to be in. So the the more that we can be ahead of the game by, as you said, you know, kill seeds, not weeds. That that that's just awesome. Yeah. Well, and especially just because of the the ability a lot of to of a lot of our pasture driver weeds to. To invade new spaces and and really really be a control uh, kind of a control nightmare. I mean, a lot of those are are on the invasive species list or the noxious weed list for multiple states because because of their ability to you know invade even established grass stands and 
Um, and so, and so having a species like that without a herbicide control option would would be a pretty bad situation. And they just spread so far and easily yeah. too. I yep. mean, you think about thistles. I mean, yep. just I I just know how many thistles I cut as a kid and had to pull blooms because. I just knew that, you know, we didn't want to spread it on our pasture ground, but we also were trying not to spread it on the neighbors because you let one of those blooms and go off. Those things are just going to float in the air Yeah, everywhere. So, um, Absolutely. And we're such a mobile society. I mean, that that's a huge thing. Um, you know, growing up, I can remember seeing books, Weeds of the South, Weeds of the East, Weeds of the West. Well, that's crazy. We need a book that says Weeds of the World because they're everywhere. <laughs> yep. Um, Eleven years ago, I know of two tiny little patches of spotted knapweed in the whole state of Missouri. Two. Today, I was watching spotted knapweed all the way to Boonville. Yeah. All the way to Boonville. It's everywhere in Missouri now. And that's just simply moving hay around. That's that's all it is. Yeah. And I was going to bring up um, at some point, you guys led into it well, but um, kind of the vectors for some of these weeds. And um, you'll hear people throw that term around a little bit, and that's just kind of the way the way that they disperse around and um yeah being strapped to a hay trailer is is a major way a lot of these get moved around and i know you know i know there's some hay that goes on on the road right right aways and things like that and man every time i drive one of the buy one of those i just wince because see a guy packing up you know fully mature thistle plants in in hay bales and loading them on a truck and who knows where those things are going like you said i mean they just it's everything's connected and it's there yeah there are no isolated weed patches anymore so no there's really not you know when if they've got a drought out west we yeah you know we'll do everything we can to help them we give hay to them we sell hay to them and unfortunately we don't give or sell our best hay to them (laughs) you know uh, we might see a locust sprout hanging out the side of a bale that's headed west and yeah the same is true you know if we're in a drought and uh, the good folks in Texas and Kansas and Oklahoma send us something, it may have some mesquite in it. But uh, uh, it's just the nature of the beast. You yeah. know, that's that's a risk we got to take, and, and certainly is one we need to be cognizant of. If I buy hay from out of state, I need to pay attention to where I feed it, keep it localized uh, as much as I can to one area, and then let's go out there and make a herbicide application early in the year before those weeds that were in those bales have an opportunity to emerge and spread across my farm yeah yeah and really equip yourself with some good information too on on scouting and and knowing what you're looking at you know the teasels of the world and the bush honeysuckles of the world um if you've been on farms where those are out of control and, and have seen what the implications of something like that are uh, the next farm that you're on where you only see one plant, you run as fast as you can to that guy's house, knock on his door and say, hey, you better get something in a jug and go spray that thing right now and you'll send me a thank you card in 10 years, you know. Um, May not, hopefully he'll never know he needed to send <laughs> That's you right. <laughs> that's right. But like I said, it's just, it's one of those, man, if, you, if you've seen it get, get wild, it's, it's, uh, it can be really bad. So you you, uh, you touched on it for just a second, um, but we've talked a little bit about spraying and, and while we're on some of the broadleaf weed stuff, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about um, impregnating dry fertilizer, where maybe some of those products that you mentioned fit and kind of timing for some of that and, and exactly what is that and, and how does it work? Thanks for asking, Adam. That's That's been something we've all learned our way through here the last few years. Uh, dry fertilizer impregnation is where we, we take a, a blend of fertilizer like you would normally put on your pasture, 
Um, we use a minimum of 200 pounds to the acre. I'd far prefer we use 250 pounds to the acre. And, and what's, just not to cut you off, but what, what's the reason for, for that, just to explain that to yeah, people? The reasoning behind that is that uh, I need enough prills spread evenly enough across the ground uh, that I can effectively kill weeds. And that's right. kind of the sweet spot that I see is somewhere in that 250 pounds per acre to 350 pounds per acre. Mm -hmm. So that might be a little bit heavier than you would normally put on on pasture ground. Chances are some of our pasture ground could use that little uptick in P and K that we've not been getting taken care of. And 350 pounds or 400 pounds is not unusual for, for good hay ground. Yeah. So, so we, uh, in the process, we, uh, we impregnate or, or apply the, uh, the herbicide, Duracore or Grazon Next, uh, my preference is the Duracore, uh, to, the, to those prills. Uh, we spray it and coat those prills uh, as they, uh, between the time that they hit the mixer and the time that they go into a fertilizer buggy or into a fertilizer truck. We also add a little bit of oil to that mix. Uh, and what we see happen the primary mode of action is through the residual activity, through the soil. But this, there is a secondary mode of action. As those prills leave that spreader, uh, they're going to smear across the leaf of weeds. And with the addition of the oil, we get fairly good control. The first thing I want everybody to understand is that when we use dry fertilizer impregnation, we give up a little bit of control of emerged weeds. We gain huge huge advantages on residual control. It, it is really, really good. So uh, timing becomes an issue. When do you normally fertilize your pastures and your hay ground? You may want to adjust that to make the fertilizer application more effective. Um, I will tell you there's a lot of folks that probably fertilize a little bit earlier than they need to, and I would encourage you to think about holding off a little bit. We get that residual activity out of these products. It might be, you know, 45 days. It might be 60 or 90 days. Uh, that changes in due to rainfall. The more rain we have, the shorter the residual time is. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd love to put that herbicide on where that residual is going to last as long through the summer as I can. So on pasture ground, I'm probably going to think about applying fertilizer that's been impregnated in the middle of April. And for hay ground, uh, I might go back as early as late May, uh, late March, mm -hmm. you know. But I'm not afraid to put uh, pasture fertilizer out in the middle of May either. You know, we encourage leaf growth when we put that fertilizer on late. We encourage stem growth when we put fertilizer on early. So that's kind of my thinking on it. For sure, and your hay quality is definitely in those leaves, not not necessarily the stems so well and I, I i would add to that i mean i, I think you're exactly right david when <clears throat> when it comes between pasture and, and hay ground and fertilization you know for the most for the most part as as producers we're trying to play catch up on that spring flush of growth with our cattle most of the time it gets ahead of us before we can really graze it and so by adding that fertilizer in the springtime early spring we're only accelerating that issue we're only pushing more grass that our cows aren't going to be able to get to fast enough before it goes mature into seed production and so i think one it, it helps with forage management by kind of backing off that fertility uh you know a little bit later in the spring but also from a weed standpoint with the impregnated fertilizer it helped with that as well amen i agree i know on on our place 
hay ground's going to get fertilized somewhere in the last half of March, and pasture ground's probably not going to get fertilized at least till May 1. Just just yeah. works for us. Spreads out your workload a little bit, too, and, um, you know, that's kind of one of the beautiful things about, about the DFI, too, is that it, it really, you know, it saves a, an entire pass across the field. You know, uh, there's a lot of pastures out there that are so rough, you break the booms off your sprayer trying to get over them, and all that kind of stuff too so that i mean there's some logistical advantages there so yeah that was something i was gonna bring up was you know i mean we talked about herbicides but we haven't really talked about timing and we talked about the different types of weeds you know with the annuals and by you know and not all those weeds are coming up at the same time they're not all you know it's it's trying to find that balance of the right timing of you know when should i be applying these herbicides so number one i don't have to go maybe i don't have to go across my pastures twice or you know how do i get that and this could be an option you know dfi could be an option where it's definitely going to help you on that is because you know like we said we can put out the dfi you know that april may time frame for those get that 60 to 90 days of residual and if for some reason you do have a strong flush of weeds that comes on later you know especially maybe on your hay ground if you do one or two cuttings and you got some herbs some weeds that are coming up you know after that cutting before the grass takes off again then maybe you know you have an opportunity to come back with a broadcast application of weeds but you've instead of doing two applications there you know so it's it's really trying to play the game of timing but to you know maximize your weed control at that same time absolutely and you know we kind of alluded earlier to timing is huge and um you know we've got cheat sheets that, that provide us with pretty accurate timing and uh the uh i i get this phone call frequently david I'm only going to spray once. What should I spray, and when should I spray it? Yeah. Well, and that usually starts this game of 20 questions with me. What's your number one problem? What is your driver weed? And then we can begin to tailor the mix and the timing. But uh, at the end of the day, if uh, if I got that question and I was only allowed to give an answer, I would tell you I would probably spray Duracore, might add some remedy to it, with a good, uh, good adjuvant, and... I would probably spray it sometime between the last half of May and the first half of June if I was just going after weeds. Yep. Because almost everything out there is going to be pretty doggone sensitive during that time frame. You know, if we get into brush, that, that changes the picture. But if it's just weeds, that that's a time that really works. For sure. Do you see any differences in, in kind of overall as, you know, as, as you're out on lots of different producers, or this goes for either of you, are there any difference really in driver weeds between hay and pasture or are, do most people have more problems with pasture, more problems with hay? I know sometimes our, our haying can be an issue just because we're doing, a lot of times we're doing the same thing at the same time every single year. And, and some of the, some of those patterns can really, you know, put us in a bad spot with, with some weeds. Yeah, they do. Um, the hay fields tend, you know, that, Repeated cutting once a year yeah. eliminates a lot of weeds. Uh, if you want to really step that game up and, and, you know, if you'll feed those hay fields really well, the fact that there is just a boatload of grass in those fields, you know, doesn't allow the weed to, to compete very effectively. Uh, you're right, though. We do run into some issues uh, in those fields that, you know, perhaps a customer will tell you every year, not long after uh, I cut that, I start seeing these locust sprouts coming. 
you know, which tells me, hey, we're cutting off locust sprouts and they're in every hay bale yeah, yeah. <laughs> that this guy's producing. I think I, I, think I bought some of those last year. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, you know, that creates an issue for us that in that when we cut those sprouts off every year, the root ball is allowed to get a little bit bigger every year, but the size of the plant never gets any bigger. Um, sometimes if it's well fertilized, that locust sprout will get big enough that by September we could spray it and take it out. Sometimes I just need to ask them, please don't hay that field next year until after we get it sprayed and we let a few months go by after spraying it. That's an important thing with the brush. If I forget to say it later, on brush, once we spray it, let it stand, don't bush hog it. Yep. It takes a long time for that herbicide to move from the leaf all the way down to the root. And I sure hate to see somebody spend the, spend good money to try to control it and then bush hog it and, uh, and watch it reemerge. Yeah. So, like on hay ground, I'll just talk about hay ground, and I really this question is kind of from coming from personal just um, experience on my, you know, my father's ground is, you know, you cut the hay, and then sometimes you'll see before the hay regrowth starts coming up, you'll see cockleburs or something like that really starting to pop off. Is there is there something that what would be your recommendation to help? keep those cockleburs back so that your grass regrowth really can take off and kind of hold back you know what i'm saying whether it's cockleburs or ragweed or whatever that weed may be yep that's a great time that's a good question and a great time to quick as you get the bales moved off you know go ahead and intentionally move them off as quickly as you can and just get a get a pint of duracor applied to, to those acres uh, let that residual go to work for you it'll keep those cockleburs from uh, from becoming an issue for you that year Cuckleburrs are kind of a, they're, they're a gift that keeps giving for several years. Uh, every burr's got two seeds in it, and one of them's pretty much genetically designed to come up next year, and the other one's genetically designed to wait a year or two. It's got a hard seed coat. So just recognize the fact that, okay, I've got cuckleburrs here for the next two or three years. i got to remember, pull that hay off and just come in and put a pint of Duracor down and let that problem become less and less over time. Another thing, uh, Cameron, is, is remember when you're haying, um, the cows are the cows want to eat the grass, not not the dirt off the top of the ground. That's right. So, <laughs> so um, I know sometimes we can we can really make ourselves very vulnerable to those weed infestations uh, by cutting hay too close to the ground. And if we can give that grass just a little more residual height, there it'll it'll come back a lot quicker. Like you were saying earlier, you know we're we're grass farming, so we're looking for. We're looking for something to compete with those weeds as well, so um, those cows will get skinny on dirt. Yeah. Well, and I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna add that as well. Is that a lot of that's due to management? You know, yep. whether it's haying the same time every year, or, or you know, your mowers scalping the ground trying to get as much as you can, um, or even in a pasture setting, it seems like, at least on my place, or I'll say on my place that, you know, I see more maybe some of those those winter annuals becoming a problem in the spring because people yep. are trying to delay that winter feeding that hay feeding so they're grubbing as much as they can out of their pastures and that just kind of opens and exposes that soil for the next spring those weeds wake up you know and they're they're right there competing with the grass or out competing the grass because they already got a jump start the fall before so and just humans i feel like it's it's definitely one of the things that <laughs> allowed us to live everywhere in the world but it's also can be our downfall too um, because it um, we are repetitive 
like we like to do the same thing. We put the we put the same cows in the same pasture at the same time every year. Uh, every year on June first, I get back from my Memorial Day trip to the lake and I hook up the hay conditioner and I take off. Right, I do the same thing every single year, and uh, that kind of stuff doesn't exist in in nature. And a lot of times, you can really uh, set yourself up for 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 continuous problems, I guess, by doing the same thing every year and just switching it up every once in a while. Certainly certainly has some value Definitely. Landry hit on you know you both hit on one of the uh, best opportunities that we've got to become better grass managers and that's find a way to to uh, get some shoes on your mower conditioner and get it up off the ground you know somewhere in that three to four inch range is in my opinion the minimum we need to be running we all got used to running as tight to the ground as we can get and I will tell you that two inches that we're picking up by by running it into the ground is not adding a whole lot of weight to the to the yield at the end of the day and Adam you mentioned recovery time is a huge difference you got to imagine that blade of grass is a solar panel you know on a tiny little solar panel where we've scalped the ground uh, has very little surface area to absorb sunshine compare that to a three and a half or four inch tall blade of grass it's nice and wide that we left that's going to recover so much faster. We all want that second cutting. Mm -hmm. I can almost promise you, when we're cutting hay on the 1st of June and we're scalping the ground, there won't be a second cutting till fall. Yep. If you leave three or four inches, you may well get a second cutting in about 30 days. It's it's highly likely. Yeah. It just has that much more opportunity to recover fast. For sure. And yeah, I mean, it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, the think of it like we're typically not cutting hay when it's 50 degrees and raining outside, right? I mean, we've got a nice... Where you know by June, when a lot of people end up getting around to cutting hay, or even July, some years, um, you know you've got you've got a complete coverage of the soil there. You know you're keeping the sun off of the surface of it, and just think about what you're doing to that climate of that where that stem's coming out of the ground in about 48 hours by by cutting it off, raking it all up into a windrow, and then bailing it up and running the tractor across it 14 times, going out there to get those hay bales. Um, you're really flipping the world on its head there uh, in those hay fields. So, so you can yeah help that out a little bit by by mitigating that cutting heights. Big deal. So before we move on to any cultural practices or brush control or anything like that, I'm just going to ask the question. I know David loves this question when people ask when it comes to <laughs> pasture herbicides. Is is and I'm just going to be devil devil's advocate here. I don't. How do I control all my weeds, David? But I have clover and I don't want to get rid of my clover. What do I do? Well, the, the, the uh, I, I do love this question. <laughs> you know, clover can be a great tool. I'm going to start there, and I'm going to say, you know, the reason that we like clover is for two things. One is to fix nitrogen, and two is to mitigate some of the toxic effect, effects of fescue. So we need to keep in mind why we have the clover before we move on to the next thing. I would ask you how much beneficial clover you have and how much clover do you have and I'm just going to name the name, it's Dutch white clover that uh, grows really low to the ground and I consider it a weed. Um, I consider it a weed because I'm going to go back to what do we grow clover for? Mitigate the effects of fescue. So I need some tonnage to dilute the effects of fescue. Dutch white clover that grows three inches tall is not producing much in the way of tonnage. Number two, we use it to uh, fix some nitrogen in the soil. Short growing clover has a short root system and it does not fix much very much nitrogen. So that's that's just 
the nature of the beast and and it can displace fescue over time if we keep grazing into the ground that dutch white gets a bigger foothold every year so i consider it on the weed list all right so when i ask that question if a guy tells me yeah i got lots of good clover good clover that grows 10 12 14 18 inches tall then uh, then i have to ask the question do you have more weeds than clover or more clover than weeds once we kind of get to that point, now we're kind of getting to where, do I need to spray? Do I need to not spray? Maybe maybe he just needs to clip those pastures too because he really right. doesn't have very many weeds. But with, why would we clip them? Just to keep them from going to seed, catch them right before they go to seed and knock those heads off. Kind of got to keep in mind though, right after we cut that, run that cutter across the field that uh, some weeds are pretty smart. If I cut it off at 12 inches tall, it's going to bloom and set seed at six inches off the ground. So we may run into a situation where it's going to make seed anyway. We do have a new herbicide that's going to come out. Uh, we're waiting on EPA approval. It just hasn't happened yet, but the name of it is going to be Proclova. Uh, it is going to be friendly to white clover and to Lespedeza. Um, it's going to ding it. It's going to lay down. It's going to look pretty sick, and then within about three weeks, it, the clover will be standing back up. And that's going to be a real game changer for us as we look at being able to introduce some good clovers like will ladino clover or uh, durana clover into these pastures and being able to fight weeds effectively and keep the clover so that's going to happen but i kind of beat around the bush there but the long and the short of it is do you have good clover or do you have bad clover? i knew that was going to be your answer david i just <laughs> wanted to make sure we i just wanted to make sure we at least talked about it but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's why he likes that question so much. Is it's a challenging one to answer, it's, and it's the one I get. Not from, I mean, from my dad even. Time. I mean, Not from my dad forward. on red clover and stuff. It's just well, how do I keep my red clover? And yeah, it's challenging. You you mentioned um, something I, I definitely wanted to cover before we get off the subject here. Well, multiple things, but we'll start with this one. You mentioned fescue toxicity or, or endophyte toxicity. Does one of you two want to jump into kind of what that is and and what causes it and just 30,000 foot level of effects of that? Well, endophyte is a fungus that lives inside the every cell of the fescue plant, the Kentucky 31 fescue. And it's great for the plant. That's why fescue grows everywhere that it grows, and that's why it is as tough as it is. Unfortunately, it produces a toxin called ergovaline that causes issues in livestock it causes constriction of the blood vessels so we get low blood flow to places like the the ends of the ears the ends of the tail the ends of the legs and that causes uh, ears to freeze off it causes tail switches to fall off it causes lameness uh, in the cattle uh, with horses it's generally they tolerate it a lot better except for uh, brood mares it can cause them to abort um, Fescue toxicity is, a, is an issue. You know, fescue is one of our best friends in the state of Missouri. We can grow a whole lot of grass here. There is no doubt about it. But uh, it does cost us. Uh, it costs us an average daily gain. I have producers every once in a while that tell me I don't have a problem with fescue toxicity. And if they've got Kentucky 31, it may be silent. They may not see lameness. They may not see tail switches and ears falling off. Uh, but they're giving up average daily gain. Yep. You know, if you have a non-toxic plant growing out there, we see average daily gains on grass being that 1.8 to 2.5 pounds per day. 
and on fescue it's going to be under a pound and a half all the time yep. it's just just the way it is so how do we mitigate that there's a there's a number of ways of doing it um, novel endophyte fescue is one that's kind of a hot topic uh, and the New Zealanders kind of helped us fix this they uh, they had had a problem with a toxic endophyte growing in a perennial ryegrass and they said oh it's really not a big deal you just got there's a lot of different endophytes you just got to find one that helps the plant that doesn't have a toxin well it's easier said than done it took a while but we now have about six of them out there uh, probably for our trade territory uh, bar optima e34 in northern missouri is pretty awesome you get down to southern missouri where it's quite a bit hotter i, I like texoma uh, quite a bit better they're both great great plants and they they both have the beneficial effects so that they that plant sticks around basically the same as Kentucky 31. It's as tough as Kentucky 31 and cattle grow better. We don't see that vasoconstriction going on. You know there's other things that we can do. We can uh, we can spray chaparral on fescue oh mid-April when that fescue wakes up and gets about 10 or 12 inches tall uh, before it has any stem elongation, two ounces of chaparral per acre, it's going to make that fescue sick. It's going to turn yellow and about two weeks later it's going to take off growing again and the fact that we made it sick at that time in its life prevents it from going reproductive for the year. So it will not make any stems or seed heads during that season. It just wants to make blades of grass which is a great side effect. The, uh, so the question becomes then, well, it's still fescue, it's still got toxins in it. Yes, it does. The highest, the hottest part of that plant is the seed head. The next hottest part of the plant is the stem. The next hottest part of the plant after that is the bottom one inch or two inches of that plant. So all those leaves from two inches above the ground you know, to the end of those leaves is the lowest toxic part of that plant. So we can actually gain about half a pound a day of average daily gain on stockers just with that one thing. Now I have to caution you, don't spray chaparral year after year after year on the same piece of ground. You need to skip a year in between. That's that's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. No, appreciate that, David, because uh -huh. it gets that term gets thrown around all the time, people talking about endophyte, talking about and I think there are obviously a lot of people that understand it and a lot of astute producers out there that, that know the impacts to their bottom line of, of some of that fescue toxicity. But, but like you said, I think there's a lot of people that don't fully understand what it is or really how, how, really how much it affects their operation for sure. So, um, before we move on too much here, let's talk a little bit about brush control before we, before I forget to, to bring it back up. Kind of what what's what's different, or what what gear do we need to change when we move from controlling broadleaf weeds in a pasture hay system to controlling brush? Probably the first that I would tell you is timing becomes extremely important. You know, buck brush is the earliest brush that we're going to spray, and historically we would look at you know a quarter two four D on April the fifteenth does a pretty good job across all of Missouri on buck brush. It's going to get about half of it, is what my my research has shown we can extend the time frame to spray buckbrush to the end of May by uh, adding some Duracore to that, a pint of Duracore and a quarter 2,4-D with a surfactant that has some oil in it. 
we can do a really a pretty good bang up job on uh, buck brush all the way to the end of May. So the next brush that comes along, customer tells you, I've got buck brush and I've got some uh, I've got some blackberries in that same field and blackberries. When I look at the timing, every university trial says September is the best time to spray. If I'm only going to spray once, that's my highest percentage of kill. Mm-hmm. I agree, but between now and September I've got a whole growing season where I might be able to pick up some grass so what we do if they've got buck brush we're already spraying Duracore and 2,4-D we add a pint of remedy to that mix and we move that application for sure to the last 10 days of May and I'm going to do a good job on my buck brush I'm going to do a pretty good job on my buck on my blackberries and I tell the producer understand you're going to need to come in in September and look for survivors on that blackberry and, and try to to kill it out. When we start thinking about trees, which is probably the number one thing on our brush, timing changes. Again, uh, most of the tree species we're not going to spray until July the 1st. Uh, The two exceptions to that would be locust and hedge, and I'll start spraying those on about June 15th. You can spray earlier than that, and it looks like you did a good job because about two weeks after you sprayed, those leaves are brown and they're falling off. And unfortunately, around August, on uh, too many of those trees, we'll begin putting leaves back on and we'll end up being back in that same boat again. So just hold off as long as you can on those. And, you know, most of what we use to spray the trees is going to do a great job of killing the weeds. So if you can hold off on killing your weeds, when I go after those trees on July 1, I'm going to do a bang-up job on trees and on, on our broadleaf weeds. So that's kind of the direction. When I look at what to spray, brush is kind of unique. Uh, most brush species will respond to either Tordon, Remedy, or Starring. One of those three. Very few of them respond to uh, two or even all three of them. But uh, so we, we really write a recipe for just about every tree species out there that we've got. There's a specific recipe that's intended to kill this. It's hard to come up with a blanket recipe that, you know... Kills everything. Kills all of it. Yeah. I mean, we could, but yeah, who can afford that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And just goes to the importance, just like what we talked about with, uh, you know, with ID and the weed problem that you have in your pasture or, or whatever, just getting somebody there that that for sure knows what species that you have and, and really how to control it. Even just knowing what, what you have can lead you down the right path as far as getting the right control measures in place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing that I'll add on brush that is super important, I very often have the conversation with guys, well, man, I just bush hog it. Well, some of our, some of our recipes for doing brush are fairly expensive, and maybe that pass, single pass with a bush hog is less money. But that I just have to ask them, okay, let's let's make a decision on which pass which path we're going to go down. Let's bush hog it until it dies, or let's spray it until it dies. And usually, if I'm, I'm in a, if I'm in a room of producers, one of them says, "Well, heck, I've been spraying or been bush hogging this for 20 years, and it's still there." <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of yep. the spot I really want to get them to is that mm-hmm. you're right. This is a perpetual problem if you're going to use a bush hog. We can spray it and eliminate the problem. We might create a plan that takes a couple of years because some of the species we're after, oaks and hickories and uh, persimmons, and uh, some of those, are they're pretty tough. They yep. take a little while. 
So we might spray a couple years in a row before we reach a point that it's pretty satisfactory. Well, hey, everyone, it's Adam here. We really, really appreciate you listening into the podcast this week. We went on in this conversation about pasture management and, and really how to make our grazing acres uh, the best that we possibly can for, for quite a long while yet. Uh, definitely want to be able to bring all that information to you. So I think what we're going to do is split this episode uh, into two parts, and you'll just have to tune in next time to pick up the, the remaining part of the episode uh, where Landry goes in and, and talks a lot about grazing systems and how we can really maximize that forage acre. So thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.